much. Take your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. How many are too hot in here right now? Okay, how many too cold? About same. <laughs> All right. We're not going to do anything about it. I just wanted to know how you felt. <laughs> All right, children can be dismissed at this time, if they would. Children can be dismissed, and we're in Hebrews chapter 11, is where we're going to start. And uh, boy, I'm grateful for the even so faithfully every week teaching these kids, and uh, it'll be a blessing as they take them back and teach them on their level. Hebrews chapter 11. The day was May 29th, 1953. The time was 11.30 a.m. Sir Edmund Hillary uh, hoisted the British flag atop Mount Everest, he was the first human being to ever set foot, basically climb to the top of the world. It took long months of planning. There was uh, picking the right crew, picking the right equipment. Long hours were spent in training uh, to acclimate them to the height and to the cold. Every step was filled with danger. Uh, they were uh, finally, the day came when they were ready to go with uh, heavy packs, with eager hearts. They started to claw their way uh, to the top of that mountain, forcing their way despite fatigue, horrible weather, lack of oxygen, and bitter, bitter cold. Their time and strength was running out when they finally did it, when they finally reached the top. Sir Edmund Hillary and his partner stood where no man had ever stood before, 29,002 feet above sea level. No man on earth before or since uh, will ever climb higher than that point. In our text today, another mountain rears its head. It's Mount Moriah, not Mount Everest. Two men can be seen forcing their way up to the top of that mountain as well. It's not as dangerous, maybe, not quite as hard going as Mount Everest is, but in some ways, Mount Moriah is much harder, it is much costlier. When at last Abraham and Isaac reached their destination, they stood, I believe, on a spiritual plateau that is perhaps higher than any other human being has ever reached. Mount Moriah represents the highest possible pinnacle of surrender. For one of them, Mount Moriah represents the highest possible pinnacle of sacrifice for the other. Few men have ever climbed that high, and I can think of only one peak that's higher, spiritually speaking, than Mount Moriah, and that is Mount Calvary. I want to talk about both of them today. If you've got your Bibles open, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to read verse 17. The Bible says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Father, today I pray you'd help us as we look at this passage of Scripture and Another as well, that you would open up your word clearly to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I want to talk about Abraham's test. We're looking at people in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 specifically whom God enlarged their coast. Uh, he brought things into their life, their, their faith grew, and, and some, of, some of them included, includes incredibly hard times that came into their life. 
But today we're looking at Abraham. Now this is the second. Uh, this is the second part on Abraham here because he's mentioned twice. This is about his commitment to God to see uh, the willingness of offering up Isaac for the Lord. The greater our faith, the greater our commitment will be to God. And Abraham's commitment is seen here because we cannot imagine a greater devotion in anybody than somebody who's willing to offer up their child to the Lord. Many Christians today, uh, he puts us to shame. We have a hard time having the faith to put our tithe in the offering plate. We have a hard time uh, having faith to go to church faithfully. And yet, Abraham was such a great hero of the faith. I want to look at a man today who was willing to give everything that he had to the Lord. And I also want to address the elephant in the room when we read this story. We're going to, in fact, you can make your way over to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to reside there for a few minutes. But there's a, there's a problem that uh, people have when they read this passage and they read this story. How could God ask any one of his children to do what he asked Abraham to do? In fact, this text is often used by atheists and secularists to argue against the validity of the Bible, to try to turn God into some kind of monster because of what he asked Abraham to do. So let's go to Genesis chapter 22 and let's look at some background and I hope I'll be able to answer that question for you today. Most people spend their entire life trying to make their dreams come true. They work to gain everything that their heart desires. Now we never stop to think that the very thing that our heart desires might not be the best thing for us. In fact, if you don't turn there now, but if you go over to Romans chapter 1, you'll read in the Bible uh, the very worst thing that God can do for you as a Christian or as, as just a human being is to give you everything you want. And that can be your undoing. The Bible says that God turned men over to their own desires in Romans chapter 1. Now, why would that be such a bad thing? Why would it be a bad thing for us to get everything that we want? Uh... Well, I can give you an example, and it also applies to adults, but all we have to do is go into a little room right back there, and uh, those of you who've had children, if you give a child everything that they want, somebody said if you give a boy and a pig everything they want, you got a good pig and a bad boy, amen? And so uh, you can't give kids everything they want, nor can you give adults everything they want. If we get what we want, that sometimes turns out to be the worst thing for us. One of the reasons is that we fashion these things into God replacements in our life. In other words, we make idols out of them. Uh, an idol is anything, and it can even be a good thing in our life, that becomes too important and stands between us and God. With that in mind, your spouse can become an idol. Your child can become an idol. Your career can become an idol. Even your ministry for the Lord can become an idol in your life. In Romans chapter 1, verse 25, Paul tells us that people uh, served the creation uh, rather than the creator. Boy, don't we see that today. In fact, all you had to do was turn on your news last week and you'll find uh, a group of people at Union Theological Seminary in New York City uh, had a climate change confession service that they prayed to plants. Plants, this is their tweet. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer. To plants. Uh, worshiping the creation instead of the creator. That's what happens 
with mankind. You see, the reason is because we all worship something. Every one of us has to worship something. Now, you might uh, get a proud atheist say, I worship nothing. I guarantee you that man or that lady worships something. We all worship something. The central theme in the Bible is that we accept God and that we are in complete rejection of anything idolatrous in our life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5 could be really a theme verse for the Old Testament and the New. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. In our example today, we we see an individual who chose the giver over the gift. And so many times we choose the gift instead of the giver. Now, God had made Abraham a promise. We've talked about this already. I'll just try to refresh our memories here that if Abraham would obey God, would do what God said, that God would bless him, and not only him, that God would bless his generations uh, for to come. And not only uh, his, his family as they would develop into many generations, he would, he would basically bless the whole earth uh, based on how they treated Abraham's family and Abraham's descendants. The Bible says in Genesis 12, 3, and I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, Abraham had to do a few things. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He had to leave his country, had to separate himself from most of his family. He had to go to a place that he did not even know where he was going, to a land, the Bible says, that I will show thee. And he had to practice some serious faith and trust in God. He had to leave everything that meant peace and security and prosperity in his life, had to leave all of that, and he had to go to a, the wilderness uncertain of where he would end up. He was asked to give up everything for God's sake, nearly all the worldly things that all of our hearts desire. Abraham, figuratively speaking, had the picket white fence. Uh, he, had the, he had the nice car in the garage. He had everything. He was ready to retire, and God called him away from all of that. Uh, and you know what Abraham did? He did it. He obeyed God. He was called to go to, to go somewhere he didn't even know where he was going. And Abraham did it. He was faithful. He obeyed what God said. But while this was all happening, God comes to him with a promise and the fact that Abraham had to leave everything that he held dear. God then gave him a new hope to cling to. He said, you're going to have a son. And through this son, you're going to have a, he's going to make of thee a great nation. Uh, now, Sarah was barren. We talked about her last week. Biologically speaking, having children was a complete impossibility for Abraham and Sarah. Not only that, not only was she barren, but the promise uh, that God made, they waited years and they waited decades, and soon they're way too old to have children. So now they can't have children because she's barren. They can't have children because they're both too old. And so the impossibility of the promise just grew in their minds. But as we talked about last week, they did have a son. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, they finally had a child. They had Isaac. And uh, any couple struggling with infertility knows the devastation that it causes as they wait for this child. No man ever longed for a son like Abraham did. He had given everything in his life uh, to wait for this in the promise that God had made for him. When his son finally came, then people would see that he was no fool. Then the, uh, what he said would happen was possible now that he had offspring. It's pretty hard to try to convince your friends and neighbors that God's going to make of my family a great nation when you got no kids. Amen? Think about it. Now Abraham would be vindicated. He finally had that son. He finally had an heir. 
The question now is, was his heart's desire and all of his contentment wrapped up in God or in a boy? Was God just a means to an end? Uh, to whom is Abraham ultimately giving his heart? Had he learned to trust God, not just for what he could get out of God? Uh, it's important. When you put your absolute and total trust in God, you will have a peace in your life because you know that he knows what he's doing. And you'll also have humility in your life because you'll realize he knows best what's best for you and what's uh, good and bad for you, and you allow him to make that choice. Now, this brings us to Genesis chapter 22. I want to start reading in verse number uh, number one, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for an upburnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Take your son and offer him up for a burnt offering. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. But there, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham was told to go take his son and sacrifice him. Uh, the, this is, uh, <laughs> we, we see this passage. You know, if you read Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 21, you would see the life of Abraham, and you'd think of Isaac as a conclusion. I, I mean, he's doing all these things, and finally he has the promise of God fulfilled in his life, and he has that son that God promised him to get, and now finally it has happened. It's the end. Uh, that's all, folks. Thanks for watching. That's what we kind of think of when we look. But then we're surprised when another com call comes to Abraham, and it couldn't be more shocking. Look at verse 2 again. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. I want to look first of all at the testing here of faith for Abraham. Uh, Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us. God tests us to bring out the best in us. And here we see that God is testing Abraham. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tried, the word translated tried is also translated tempt and test. It can be used in two different ways. Uh, one way means to solicit to do evil. The same word is used in the Matthew chapter 4 when uh, Satan tempted Christ, tried to solicit him to do evil. The other way that it can be used is by examining or probing or testing something and that is the meaning here in this passage. Say, how do you know, preacher, that it's meant that way? Well, the Bible tells us in James 1.13, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So God will not ever tempt you to do wickedness. And so he here is testing Abraham. Abraham was not tempted to do evil by God, but he was being tested. Now, faith can be compared somewhat to a school in this area. When you go to school, you have those horrible things they call tests. Remember those? 
and you have to take tests. And you know what happens in the school of faith? Once in a while, you're going to have to take some tests. If you don't pass the test, guess what, friend? You got to take it again. If you do pass the test, then what happens? You get a harder test. See how this goes? It doesn't seem to get any better. Either way, you're going to be stuck with some tests. Now, we have tests in school not to hurt the student. We have tests to help them, to get them to the next level, to teach them and to help them learn. Uh, if you go to school, you'll be tested. If you walk by faith, you'll be tested. Abraham had already faced a number of tests. He had, there was the forsaking test. When he was told to leave the Ur of Chaldees and he passed with flying colors on that one, he did what God said. There was the famine test after he got into Canaan. And uh, he failed that one because he went to Egypt and, and not good things happened in Egypt. Uh, there we saw the falsehood test. When it came to, to, to Sarah in Egypt, instead of being truthful about who she was, his wife, uh, Abraham, lied about Sarah to protect his own skin. Uh, told the, 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 uh, told, told the uh, leader that, he was, that she was his sister. And then there was the family test in parting with Lot. He passed that one. Uh, Lot failed that one and making the wrong choices. Then there was the fatherhood test when he had a, an opportunity to make the right choice concerning Ishmael with Hagar and he made the wrong choice there and he failed that. Sounds kind of like our life, doesn't it? We fail a few, we pass a few, we fail a few, we pass a few. It encourages us not to tell us that it's okay to fail, but that we can overcome failure in our life. Amen. So if you have had a failure in your school of faith, don't let it discourage you. Get up and keep going and have a victory in the future. Uh, the original call that ca called Abraham away, this challenged him to lead to leave everything, uh, that everything that was connected to his past. The call that comes here in Genesis 22 uh, requires him to basically give God everything that is connected to his future. God wants everything in our life. One showed that he loved God more than his father. The other shows that he loved God more than his son. God wants our love, our supreme devotion. Isaac was everything to Abraham. As God's call makes clear, God knew this. Look how he responds to it, or how he tells Abraham. He refers to the boy as your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. God knows how Abraham feels about Isaac. Now, there's some speculation, and I want to be careful here always when we look into the Word of God and we, we go further than what the Bible uh, actually tells us because sometimes we have some speculation. I'll just tell you that this is a little bit of speculation when it comes to judging another person's heart. Uh, but I wonder here if in Abraham's life, if his, if his uh, affection had not begun to become adoration as far as Isaac is concerned. You see, prior to Isaac, Abraham's entire meaning in life was dependent on God's word. Was it now starting to become dependent on Isaac's love? It seems like the focus in uh, Abraham's life is shifting just a little bit here. And God is not saying that you cannot love your son, but he is saying that you must not turn that son into an idol as we see in Abraham's life here. Nothing should ever supersede your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Father, uh, even your own family. But yet many people read this passage and they have reasonable objections to what God tells Abraham to do. To kill your... I mean, let's just be clear. Let's not mince words.
his son's chest, killing his son, and then he was to burn him, basically like uh, doing exactly what God said. He was to give him as a sacrifice. Now, uh, excuse me while I uh, get some power back in my life here. Amen. There we go. Uh, It's an amazing request here. We think this is an absurd request. But I have a question now. Would the command have been totally irrational to Abraham? It helps us if we understand the kind of thinking that we find in the Jewish, uh, well, in Abraham's day uh, at that time. John Levinson, a Jewish scholar in Harvard, talks to us about how ancient cultures, they were not individualistic like ours are. We live in an individualistic culture. Uh, People's hopes and dreams at that time were not uh, for their own personal success, for their own preeminence. Rather, what was done was done for the entire clan. There's also what's called the ancient law of primogeniture. And what that means is that the oldest son would receive the estate, he would receive the wealth of the family, and basically that so that the family would not lose its place in society. The individualistic culture that we're used to did not exist in Abraham's day. Uh, today, our identity and worth is found in our own success. You know, you can become a complete success if your family has nothing. You can come from, and we've seen it all over in America today, people come from a dirt poor family with no opportunity and they become a a success through hard work and dedication. This did not exist back in Abraham's day like it does today. In ancient times, all the hopes and dreams of a man and his family rested in the firstborn son. Helps us understand God's command to Abraham if we consider the time that they lived in. Now, the Bible repeatedly talks to the Israelites about the fact that because of their sin, that God, their their oldest son, was to be forfeit. Exodus chapter 22, verse 29, The firstborn of thy sons shalt thou give unto me. When God brought uh, judgment to Egypt, remember the ultimate, the last uh, judgment that God brought on Egypt, whom did he attack in the families? He took the firstborn sons of those that did not have blood on the door. And so firstborn lives were forfeit because of the sins of the families in the nation. Why? Because the firstborn basically was the family or represented the family. All that is crucial if we understand, uh, or to help us understand the command that God gives Abraham. In other words, if Abraham heard a voice saying, go out and kill Sarah as a sacrifice, this would not have resonated with the philosophy of his thinking. There would have been no connection there. But uh, that when God demanded his only son's life, Abraham got it. He's calling in Abraham's debt. His son would die for the sins of the family. Now, you might be listening to this and say, preacher, that is outrageous. No one would ever do that. May I remind you of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's exactly what God did for you. Gave his only son. Understanding the command, though, doesn't make it any easier. But the Bible says that Abraham got up early the next morning. And he starts out. On his trip, I can't imagine that he had much sleep that night, thinking about what he would have to do. Uh, Abraham's response was instant, but imagine how difficult that three-day journey was. Every step would be painful. 
Abraham's mind had to be swirling with so many different thoughts. God is just. Because of our sin, he has a right to take Isaac. But yet God is also merciful. And don't forget that God promised that he would have, I would have many, many, my seed would be like the sand and the stars in the sky and I'd have this great nation. And now the only way to get that, he wants me to sacrifice. And so his mind would be swirling with all these thoughts. Even how can God be holy and just and still fulfill his promise. And yet, here's the key, folks, and this is why he's found in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, because of this. He had faith in God anyway. The key to faith in your life is sometimes not completely understanding the why, why God tells you to do something, but just obeying anyway. That's what faith is all about. Trust. How did Abraham? I mean, I'm a dad. You're a parent, many of you. How did Abraham make his way up that mountain, knowing what he had to do. The Bible gives us a little hint in Genesis 22, 5. He says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And the assumed meaning here is we will come again to you. Now, I, Hebrews chapter 11 hints to us that Abraham thought God was going to raise him from the dead or he would be able to. Look, Abraham said, I don't know. I, I, I just trust God. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to go down. But I know God promised me a great nation, and I know God always honors his word, so I'm just going to do what he says. This is faith, folks. We're not called to always figure out the big picture. We're not always called on to say how everything's going to end up. When God says go, we go. When God says stop, we stop. When God says turn over our nearest and dearest possession, we do exactly what he says. This is the life of faith, having faith that he knows what he is doing. Abraham did not go up that mountain under the power of positive thinking or his own willpower. Abraham was not uh, basically uh, exercising blind or dumb faith. Listen, if he did not believe that he was in debt to a holy God, then he would have been too angry to go. Sacrifice my son? Crazy? If he'd have also not believed that God was a God of grace, he'd have been too discouraged to go. But Abraham had faith. He knew God was both loving and holy. And so he put one foot in front of the other as they went up that mountain heading to where they needed to be. Finally, Abraham and his son can see the sacrifice site. When they reached it, the place that God told him to go to, Abraham built an altar there. He started to arrange the wood. He bound his son Isaac. I, I think we can all agree that Isaac would have been able to overcome if he wanted to, but Isaac also was in a place of surrender here. Isaac allowed himself, I believe, to be bound and to be laying on top of the wood. Again, this is his child, his only child. You're a parent. You can imagine the emotions as he is he's probably weeping as he's doing it. Isaac lays down willingly on that sacri on that wood. And then... And then uh, after he bounds him, he reaches out his hand, he takes his knife, and he raises the knife to plunge into the chest of his only son. And then look at verse number 11, what happened. Verse 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. 
For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. Then Abraham saw a ram caught in a thicket. He untied Isaac, and they sacrificed it in the place of his son. Now, what is this story all about? What is he trying to drive home here? I think uh, really it's about two things. One that Abraham probably saw very clearly, and then one thing that Abraham did not see so clearly that I think we can understand today better. First, we see the assessment. This is what he was able to see clearly. He saw that God was testing him about loving God supremely. In the end, the Lord said to him, Now I know you love me more than anything in the world. You weren't even going to withhold your own son from me. No, God is all-seeing. God sees every heart. So he's not really trying to find out if Abraham loves him. Now that now I know like God didn't know before. Uh, he's He already knew that, but God is putting Abraham through the furnace so that his love for God can come forth as gold. And Abraham, because this was a learning experience for him, that's why I believe God's using Isaac as the test. Abraham could come, like we do, could come to love Isaac more than he loves God. Abraham could put things in this world ahead of God. This would have been idolatry. And can I tell you something, friend? Every bit of idolatry is extremely destructive in our Christian lives. So this was really a, could look at this as an act of mercy of God. Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham, but he was not safe to have until Abraham put God first and would not put Isaac first. The same is true in your family, my friend. Can I tell you today that if you uh, put your child or your mate or anybody in your family between you and God, you are headed for trouble. You had better give your children to the Lord uh, or they can be your undoing. For example, if you place a child as your primary joy and your primary fulfillment, what happens when they fail you? What happens when they mess up? Can I give you a little bit of parental experience? They'll mess up. They will. They're kids. They're young people. They'll mess up. They'll do, and, and we can handle it much better if God is first place in our life. Until this test, Abraham never had to choose between his son and obedience to God. Listen, there may be things in your life today, don't miss this now, there may be things in your life today, maybe your career, maybe your family, you don't even realize what place they're in or how idolatrous they are until you face a situation in which you have to make a choice. And that's what happened with Abraham here. If we're not willing to hurt our career or or just as an example to do God's will, then our career becomes an idol. The truth of the matter is, every single one of us probably have some Isaacs that we ought to bring right here and lay down in front of God today. Things in our life that we allow to become between us and our Savior. So Abraham's excruciating walk in the mountains was the final stage of a long journey, one in which God was turning him from an average man into one of the greatest figures in history. Did did God not enlarge Abraham's coast? (laughs) Yes, he did. He didn't do it in any pleasant ways, though, did he? We were pretty much unpleasant with how how he grew him. We can look at that kind of a common theme there in Hebrews chapter 11. What Abraham may not have seen so very well in his time was the fact of the substitute principle here. Why had Isaac not been sacrificed? The sins of Abraham's family were still there, weren't they? 
but Isaac was not sacrificed. How could a holy and just God overlook Abraham's and his family's sin and not take that firstborn? Well, a substitute was offered, a ram. Uh, was it the ram's blood that took away Abraham's sin? The ram they found in the thicket. When they sacrificed that ram on the altar that he had set up for Isaac, was it that ram's blood that took away the sin of the Abraham's family? No. That was a picture of many years later when in that same mountain, another firstborn son was stretched out on wood to die on behalf of our sins. There on Mount Calvary, when the Son of God cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And no voice came down from heaven at that time to stop it. No, he went through with it. God the Father actually paid the price, and he did it for you and me. So here then is the practical answer to the Isaacs that we have in our lives. They're not spiritually safe to have and to hold. We need to offer them up. We need to find a way to keep from clutching to these things too tightly in our life to be enslaved by them. Our faith needs to be in God and in God alone. Of course, we know there's nothing wrong with having nice things. There's nothing wrong with loving our family. All of those things are good. Let's just keep our priorities right. God needs to be at the very top. God saw Abraham's sacrifice. He said, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only son from me. How much more? How much more, friend, can we look at his sacrifice on the cross and say to God, now I know that you love us. You did not withhold your only son. Oh, can't we have faith in him? Can't we trust him today? When the magnitude of what God did dawns on us, does it not make faith in him easier? because of what he's done for us on the cross of Calvary. So Jesus alone makes sense of this story in Genesis chapter 22. Jesus explains what the story is all about. The only way God can be both just in demanding payment for our sin and a merciful God providing salvation by grace is because years later, yet another father went up the mountain and gave his only begotten son and he did it for you and me. Think of the greatest disappointments in your life. And if you're honest, most of them have to do with, with our own Isaacs. Things that we put too much faith and trust in instead of the Lord Jesus Christ. When disappointment comes, when hardship comes into our life, we can opt for bitterness, despair. I worked all my life to get that, and now it's gone can apply it to our own children. I've slaved my whole life to give that girl every opportunity. Now look how she treats me. Or like Abraham, we could take a walk up into that mountain. God, I may have to live without what I thought I could not live without, but I have you. Can we say that today? Can we say that to the Lord? Making him the most important. I have the only thing I really need when I have the Lord in my life. Hold lightly what you value greatly because it doesn't belong to you anyway and God can take it anytime. Let's not, let's not put our faith in stuff. Amen? 
Let's not put our faith in people. Let's not put our faith in our possessions because it can be gone. It can be wiped out just like that. Let's put our faith in the Lord himself. You may not realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. He is enough. Of course, we know reading this story here, God didn't want Isaac's life. God wanted Abraham's heart. And that's what he got. And that's what he wants from you and I today. He wants your heart today. You can keep the world for a moment, but you're going to have to give it up in the end anyway. Or you can keep your soul by letting go of things that never mattered in the first place. Jesus asked a question. What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Let's not get our priority lists mixed up. Amen? Let's keep God at the top. And I have a question for you, dear Christian. What is your Isaac this morning? What is in your life that you know, and maybe God's pinpointed it out. Maybe while I've been speaking, he just uh, softly reminded you, this is, friend, this is in your life. You've set this before me. You've allowed this to uh, get closer, become more of the object of your contentment, your value, your identity, and your pleasure. You've allowed this to come closer in your life than what I am. And I encourage your friend today to lay it down. Lay it down. Don't allow there to be anything in your life more important to you than God. Are you willing to lay it down for Jesus' sake? Sacrifice that. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Abraham.